0: Welcome back to the Power Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure and honor to introduce to you a legend in, I guess, Paralympic sport. I'm not going to say he's a legend in wheelchair rugby because he's he had another sport that he did before then, Greg Smith, OAM. Greg is currently the strength and conditioning coach for the Australian wheelchair rugby team. He's a five-time Paralympian in two sports, so he competed three times with track and field and was a multiple medalist with that and two times with wheelchair rugby and won a gold and silver medal in that sport. So welcome to the podcast, Greg.
1: Thanks, Liz. Thanks for
0: having me along. Uh, I'm so glad I was finally able to pin you down. You're a difficult <laughs> man to track. <laughs>
1: oh, well, I'm sorry about that. I don't feel very difficult to track, but that's... I'm, glad... <laughs> like... I'm glad you found me.
0: Life, life gets busy at times.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yes, it does.
0: Yes. Yeah, Greg, can you tell us a bit about your background, your impairment, and how you got into coaching, strength and conditioning, and obviously, in there, we want to hear a little bit about you as an athlete.
1: Yeah, sure. So, I I guess to start, I mean, my life just started the same way everybody else's does. Um, (laughs) I I was born, I was born able-bodied, but yeah, and you know, went to primary school and through secondary school and and sort of grew up doing playing sport and all those sorts of things that you you know you get up to when you're up to the age of 19 yeah as a kid (laughs) and up to the age of 19 years old Uh, yeah and I loved sport everything to do with sport playing it watching it and I still do but that you know they were my main focus when I was when I was a kid Academically, at school, I did what I had to do. <laughs> I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have said that I was a standout, and I never came home and showed my mum, you know, <laughs> A's in anything else other than probably PE sure. or sport. <laughs> but yeah, and I did. So I did what I had to do to get through school. I, well, I wasn't, I wasn't a failure, but I wasn't a standout, standout mm-hmm. kid. And I, and so when I was in year, uh, probably was probably halfway through high school, I sort of thought, you know, with my love of sport, that following that PE teacher mm-hmm. type thing would be um, be the way to go. I wasn't really a tradie sort of guy and not that, you know, manual with my hands in mechanics and carpentry and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and PE with sport was what I loved. So I, um, after year 12, I applied to do um, PE at, at university, mm-hmm. um, got accepted. And then over the break between the end of year 12 and when university was going to start, I just sort of started out, my mates were all tradies, so they were all kind of working and making some money and having great big weekends and Mm. good times and getting away and things like that. And I had a part-time job, but, you know, working in a hardware store. But yeah, I just sort of felt like I probably needed or wanted to take a break from school before I'd before I went because I kind of had the understanding you know I had four years ahead of me of mm-hmm. study before I became you know a qualified teacher if that was where, where I was heading mm-hmm. but I wanted to yeah just have a bit of money and enjoy some of the things that my mates were doing as well with, with a bit of work and travel and all that sort of stuff so I deferred my uni for 12 months and that was that was fine but probably a couple of or a month or so into that, I sort of thought, you know what, <laughs> this, this probably isn't going to work. Um, <laughs> I, I really actually need to get myself a job and do something because I, I just had no money and I couldn't keep up with my mates. So, and I don't know whether I was heading to the job job seeker place or a C. It was called the Commonwealth Employment Service back in mm. those days, the CES. Yeah. And I don't know whether I was heading there on this day, but I I do know it was around the same location that I was mm. walking. And I walked past an army recruitment centre and I right. sort of thought, why do you might wander in there and have a bit of a look and see what's going on. And it was a really random decision because joining the army was never, ever anything that was on my radar. I mean, mm. you know, as a kid, a kid running around with toy guns and sticks and shooting at my brothers and my mates <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> but that was about as far as joining the military was ever a consideration. But anyway, I wandered in and I sat there and listened to this guy tell me all the things that I could do. And before before I knew it, I guess signed my interest up. had been sparked, and I was. I was signed <laughs> up. It was so random. And I just remember getting, uh, just sort of walking out of there thinking, what well, it just happened. <laughs> it looks like I'm going to be a soldier. So, um, yeah, I, I went home and told my mum what I'd done, and she just, looked at me with this blank expression on her face. And I don't, I don't really recall what she sort of said at the time, but I just remember the look on her face <laughs> um, before I knew it. Yeah, so a few, you know, a few months later that I was, I was off. So I was mm. off, off to Kapuka, which is basic army training in Australia and, yeah, did 13 weeks there, um, came out working in with a qualification to to go to armoured school, so working with tanks and armoured personnel vehicles and things like that. Mm -hmm. It really probably wasn't what I wanted to do in the army, but it was the end of basic training. I wanted to be back in Victoria. And, and sort of not far from my family and my friends. And, and I was playing football at the time uh, in sort of under-18s, starting to move into senior football. So I wanted to keep that going. And I, and I knew that I could on weekends when, I, when it was possible um, mm-hmm. within the Army. So I wanted to be back close to home. And Armoured Corps was based at Puckapunyal, which was mm-hmm. only about two hours from Ballarat, where, I'm, where I was born and, and still living and growing up. So yeah, that was kind of the decision then. But you know, an armored call was great. I made some fantastic friends. I was driving, as I said, I was, you know, I was driving armored tanks. Uh, so it was was kind of good fun. But again, going back to that, you know, in school where I wasn't mechanically minded, and, mm. and so yeah, you know, I sort sort of worked out pretty quickly that you know, working on driving tanks wasn't going to be something that I was going to stay. Mm-hmm. A few little courses came along in, in sort of the. Two years that I was that I was there before I had my accident, which I really enjoyed. Though, and they were, they were sort of physical courses. Like one one was a parachute um, right. course where you're yeah, learning to jump and pack parachutes and things like that. <laughs> uh, but the main one that I, I ended up being able to do was a physical training instructors. All and, right, um, and that's where you know, sport mm. sport was, was able to be continued. And, and I knew that if, although I, I sort of learned early on in in the course that if I got to do this. And, and pass the course at a, at a high level, then that's where I could take my career in the Army mm. from away from, you know, working in Armoured Corps and becoming a physical training instructor. Yeah. Uh, so that's where, yeah, like, I was really passionate about doing well on the course and in the end I did. And the course was actually in Sydney at the time mm-hmm. at the School of Artillery, which is over in over Manly there, north head of the harbour. And, that, and that's where, so I was doing my course, I got to the end of the course, passed it. Really well, and I think it was in the top two mm. of the course. Yep. So yeah, so that was obviously enough for me to then go back to armoured, um, uh, finish, you know, what I was, or, or go back to what I was doing in armoured, and then just wait for
0: an opportunity um, to come
1: up. Yeah, an opportunity to come up for me to be able to then become a physical training instructor, mm. um, and, and then just sort of transfer across cores because I think at the time. PTIs were part of um, the medical corps. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it would have just been a trans the transition, I guess, across from armored corps to medical corps. I'd also applied for SAS at the time to have a, oh. go, have a go at that, have a go at that as well. But yeah, so I was kind of probably away from armored corps, and I was more interested uh, then on you know anything to do that was a bit more physical, more physical, yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah. But PTI was what I. And to become passionate about and and it was actually driving home from that course because I'd yeah I'd driven my car up from Victoria to, to Sydney to do the course um mm-hmm. it was actually driving home from there that I'd fallen asleep uh, behind ah. the wheel we'd had we'd had a really big big night to finish the course off mm-hmm. um with a few friends that you know I'd become friends with from while we were there on course, and these guys were, you know, they were in different courses all around the country as well. Mm. They'd come to do that course. Yeah, a few of us had become really good friends during that 13 weeks. And then we, yeah, we decided we wanted to get out and celebrate the, the finish of the course, but also, you know, the fact that we might, we might not have ever come across each other again. Mm. And it was just, we were all young blokes, as you do, get out a few beers, and a few too many beers. And it was a very, very late night. I think I got. Got into bed at about it was around five o'clock in the morning mm. um, on base, and we had to finish off that last that that last day of the course. We still had some wrapping up to do and cleaning up and things like that. So I was back in you know in the mess hall at six a.m. Oh. So yeah, I basically got into bed at five o'clock and <laughs> slept until. Six o'clock, Six. which mm-hmm. probably wasn't a great, it wouldn't have been a great sleep, mm-hmm. and I was up and about, and yeah, doing the day, and it was during summer, so it was pretty hot up there, so mm-hmm. I was yeah fairly tired and fatigued, and yeah, jumped into the car later that day. I had a few days off before I had to go back to, to the base, um, mm-hmm. Puckapunyal. So I was, my plan was to drive all the way back to to Ballarat, which is about. 12 hour drive mm-hmm. from up yep. there and yeah catch up with my family and mates and things like that and go to work on the monday but um i left there on the thursday or the wednesday afternoon and yeah about 1 a.m i just started to fight fatigue and you know all those sorts of things that can happen when you're driving a car and you get start to get tired you get the you know your eyes start to close and you mm-hmm. get the little sort of head and micro sleep like so, that yep. sort of called them now these days. Those sorts of things were happening and, and I was just, I was 19 and I was silly and, you know, indestructible. Mm. Um, kept going and kept pushing myself and in the end it was just, yeah, just caught up and that micro-sleep obviously became a little longer than a micro-sleep. Mm. I remember sort of waking up and the last thing was the car headlights flashing across the road and um, running off the off the road into a paddock Mm. And, yeah, that was where it sort of all happened, really. Um, there was, yeah, it's a kind of a funny story, I suppose. But so the accident happened and in the, I remember, sort of those, as I said, those headlights flashing across the road then really getting thrown around, rough, you know, obviously being smashed around with the car. Mm. Yeah. And then nothing and just sort of sitting there. And, and then, yeah, then it just sort of became really quiet. And, then, and I was just sitting there in the car. Thinking, well, well, you know, I don't know what sort of happened there, but I better try and get out and go and get mm. some help. And yeah, so I opened the car door and climbed on out, and I couldn't walk, so I thought, mm. well, I'll, yeah, you know, we better crawl up and try and get some help. And this is pitch black, pitch dark, so yep. I had no idea where I was or what was going on. But I kept sort of, sort of thought I'd crawl where I needed to crawl to. Crawled for a long time, and in the end, I sort of didn't feel like I was going going anywhere or was lost mm. or whatever, but. As it turned out, yeah, a farmer and his uh, son had been clearing this paddock uh, that morning, like that the afternoon, that day that I'd, I'd sort of crashed and mm. they'd come back to pull a tree down that they'd really struggled with um, yep. late in the day and that was the one tree in the paddock that I actually oh. ran into. So the car, the car had oh. shot across the road, gone off and the paddock was lower than the road so the car had sort of nosedived in and mm. um, on an angle and landed on its side and it slid across on its side straight into this tree and crushed the roof line, which right. had snapped my neck and broken yep. my broken my neck neck. So yeah, that bloody one tree.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, oh, uh, man. Yeah.
1: I, I read it. And I bloody knocked it over for him too. <laughs> <laughs> so you helped him out. <laughs> I, yeah. I can't help him out yet. But yeah, so that's where I was I that so that Crash, they think, happened about one a.m. around one thirty-ish. These guys didn't find me until about seven o'clock in the morning. So I had hypothermia. I was in a pretty bad way. Yeah, yeah. My journey sort of started from there and being as a as a quadriplegic. Well, as a quadriplegic, yeah, broken neck, incomplete spinal cord injury at C six, C seven. So
0: I've
1: got really good sort of sensation through most of my body, but my hands, yeah, I've got. My hands are a little are affected. My right hand's not not too bad, or, or really, my right hand probably doesn't do much for me at all. Really, mm-hmm. used to keep used to keep gloves on for racing and playing rugby and things like that, yeah. things like that, and, I, and that help me catch a ball and push a chair. But it's yep. not, functionally, it doesn't doesn't work do much. Well. Yep. No, mm-hmm. my left hand is pretty good. It's not too bad, but again, it's not 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 normal and certainly has its weaknesses. Mm. It makes it a bit difficult, but yeah. So that's kind of where I ended up there um, in terms of my injury. And it was during rehab that I was introduced to wheelchair racing yep. by a guy who was a, a similar sort of injury to me, so it was a similar sort of level. Yeah, and he, he came in and and he was just sort of talking to me about everything to do with life as a quad and stuff mm-hmm. like that, like peer, peer kind of conversations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he introduced me to athletics told me about it that that's what he did and he'd been to to a couple of games I think he'd been to LA in 84 right. um, and yeah and then Seoul in 88 mm-hmm. so that sort of sparked a little bit of interest in mm. me and he loaned me a racing chair and so this would have been 87
0: mm-hmm.
1: that he loaned me that and my first competition yeah and, and I sort of fell in love with it and, and mostly because it was something that. I don't know whether it was the whether it was fact that I was getting back into sport and something sporty, or whether it was actually something that was going to challenge me again mm. physically. Yeah, uh, which was something that, you know, as I spoke about, was it wasn't only the enjoyment that I got out of sport playing sport, but it was also the challenge. Like I yep. really loved the challenge of getting better and improving myself and, and trying to beat others. And 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 I think jumping in that r- racing chair again, or, or for the first time, just brought that back hmm. um those sorts of feelings so it's kind of yeah i loved it pushed myself because i hated running as an athlete like, <laughs> as an athlete. like the footy coach used to say you guys you go, go and run a few laps it was like oh god this is the worst part of it I just, wanted, <laughs> just give me the ball
0: this... and let me run yeah, around on the field and right.
1: <laughs> yeah. play yeah um, that's funny i you know, you learn that as an SNC coach too, that athletes don't really want to train. They just want to play. <laughs> um, so I, I had that same mentality. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but before I knew it, you know, after my first competition in 88 while other guys were over at Seoul doing their mm-hmm. thing, and, and that was sort of what probably sparked my interest was to, you know, well, I want to see if I can make 92 yep. in Barcelona. And, and I did that, and I was a middle – I sort of started off as a short-distance short athlete. Yep. um but then found my niche in that kind of 800 1500 right. 5000 sort of sort of distances so mm-hmm. i qualified in those for um for barcelona in 92 didn't go so well on the track but yeah I'd, and that that was understandable you know i was a brand new athlete yep. to it really i'd only been training probably you know a few years and there's Yep. Well, Not all athletes in all sports get there in their first no, first 12 in their first months. Games, or a yeah, of years. yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. So um but you know, I yeah, so I, I did okay. I, no, I don't think I made any finals, but I was still happy with, you know, obviously getting to the games and doing what I was doing and the goals that I'd sort of set, which was mm-hmm. basically getting to the games uh, 92. But in the marathon, I actually I don't know, I pulled one out from somewhere because and I think I was lucky that a few people crashed, but <laughs> <laughs> I um I ended up with a bronze medal oh, wow. in the mar- in the marathon so um yeah so that really probably inspired me to go on and mm-hmm. look for uh you know 96 in Atlanta and then again I had, I won a silver medal in in the 5000 there so that and we won a couple of medals in the relays. so that yep. sort of sparked a bit more interest again and, and a bit more motivation to and especially with two thousand, you know, yeah, being in Sydney, yep, yeah, that that really probably piqued my inspiration and motivation. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and each games sort of went along, and, and it was I wasn't just obviously competing at Paralympics. I was doing lots of road racing and traveling the world, just competing and and learning to be a better athlete and learning how to train and work harder. And I had some good coaches along the way, mm-hmm. Kathy like Lee and. Jenny Banks were a couple Mm. of good coaches in those early days. And then, yeah, so after Atlanta where I met another coach, a guy called Andrew Dawes, then so I started to work with him and, yeah, obviously worked through 2000. And and 2000 was, yeah, probably my best games where I I actually won the 800, 1,500 and 5,000, so Mm. brought home three gold medals there. So and that was, yeah, yeah, a, a really great Experience and, you know, in terms of goal setting, you know, an achievement that I probably really never thought I'd get. Right? I obviously, mm. set the goals and and it got better with my competing and confidence and and I think just racing in front of
0: a home crowd, family
1: and your home crowd yeah. brought like I think that absolutely brings another level to your, yeah <laughs> to your um uh, your competitiveness and your will to win. And I certainly think that 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 helped as much as everything that I'd learned and the athlete that I'd become Mm -hmm. in terms of winning there. So, yeah, that was great. And then I retired from athletics in 2002. Um, I knew of wheelchair rugby, but I was, and people had often asked me if I was ever interested in coming to play. Mm -hmm. And I was always like, oh, look, my focus is on athletics. And if I, you know, if I hurt my hands or get injured or Mm -hmm. something in rugby, then that, buggers up my my goals and my plans for wheelchair racing and so yeah I never did it but then as when I'd retired someone did come to me and and say look you know now you're finished do you want to play socially and I thought yeah why not I'll give it a go and yeah and I loved it and it sort of sparked that competitive
0: (laughs) and that team sport and and Uh,
1: and that's yeah that's exactly right Liz that was the thing I think that really grabbed me because you know as a kid i only played team sports yeah i didn't do i didn't i played i played a bit of tennis and stuff like that as a kid but my main sport was was footy afl um and a little bit of cricket you know through the summer and stuff so team sport was really where i had come from Mm. um, and, and a physical sport and all of a sudden yeah rugby was like wow here's this team sport and Just that physical edge to it again, running into people and crashing. (laughs) I sort of love. I really love that. And before I knew it, so this was probably two thousand and three that I'd started that. There was teams being selected to go to Athens in two thousand and four. Yep. I was fortunate enough that um, APC, the Paralympic Committee at the time, had struck up a deal for coverage with SBS. TV, and I, yeah, along with the, um, uh, Carney Liddell, who was a, an old swimmer, we mm-hmm. were actually selected as or picked as athletes to work within the SBS broadcast during Athens, so, right. which was a fantastic experience. Wow, um, yeah. You know, we, yeah, we were just going away to interview athletes and pile a few stories and uh, yeah, it was it was fantastic. But as I said, you know, the wheelchair rugby team was selected to go to Athens as well. So it was mm-hmm. kind of fun to go and sort of follow them and be a little bit inspired. Yep. You know what? I, I thought, oh, you know what, I I might actually have another go at sport
0: and see
1: if I could make the 88 team
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, in wheelchair rugby. Um, and I did in the end, yeah. So I think I sort of brought, and it was rugby at the time, Probably didn't have that elite high yep. like, performance mindset to it yet. Like it was only quite a new sport. You know, two thousand was a demo
0: sport. Mm-hmm.
1: Or yeah, well, it was a medal event, but it was its first first time as a medal. Ninety six, it was more of a demo sport. Yep. So by the time eighty eight came around, it was still quite a, a young two thousand
0: eight.
1: Sp- oh, sorry, yeah, two thousand. <laughs> it was still, jeez, eighty eight. Oh. Yeah, two thousand eight. <laughs> I was already busy then with that <laughs> <laughs> But it was still quite a young sport, I, suppose, I guess, yeah. in terms of finding its place in, in the sporting landscape. So it had no high performance values and, you know, lots of people were just playing. You know, they weren't really training
0: for the mm-hmm. sport
1: that much. Um, there were a few that obviously were, but particularly in Australia, um, I think probably in the, States where, in the States and Canada where it was, was really probably taking off Mm. Things were a little bit more heading towards that high performance mindset and approach. So, like coming from athletics across, yeah, you know, I sort of brought a real that that more high performance training hard and to the team
0: yep. and
1: to the squad. So that started to bring along other players as well who wanted who were already sort of trying to do their best, but didn't really know how to train for sport mm. um, and other than just going to play. So I probably brought a few people along with me and, you know, by the time 2012, so so 2008 year I went to Beijing, Mm -hmm. Uh, we won a silver medal, which was really quite a a surprise and we were probably fortunate that some of the other teams were kind of knocked out, like GB and and New Zealand, who were the current Paralympic gold medalists at the time, they just had you know, really close games that they just got knocked over, on, mm. you know, losing by one goal in in the final seconds of games, and it and it just sort of hurt them. Where we were, we were scraping through on the other side. We were yep. we, we were <laughs> winning those kind of close games, and before we knew it, yeah, we, we were playing against the best team in the world at the, or the second best team in the world at the time, which was the US. Yep. in a final, and yeah, they they brought that experience to the game that we didn't have, and in the end yeah they, they they beat us Yeah, so it was quite comfortable in the end but it was we went really well up to about half time but in the end they kind of got us but, but as i said you know moving forward to 2012 what you know I, I kept more athletes started to come along on that high performance journey mm-hmm. and started to think about london in, in 2012 and yeah we took a really strong team in 2012 and we won the gold medal there which was mm. And that, and that was the end of my athletic career. <laughs> because that, it was funny, after two thousand and eight, you know, that was the goal that I'd
0: set. So yep.
1: in two I actually retired. I I thought this this is enough. <laughs> for the, you know, for the second
0: time. <laughs> yeah, for the second
1: time. And and this and this is also where my my S and C path began as well, because mm-hmm. the coach who was Brad Dudley at the time, and, and, still, and still is, an is. Australian <laughs> national coach. Yes, yeah. Yeah. yeah, He's been around just about as long as both of us. Yeah. Uh, Liz, but uh-huh. he uh he said to me, "Well, you know, if you don't want to play anymore, would you be the the co- like the physical coach, the mm-hmm. SNC coach for the team conditioning and everything?" And I said, "Yeah, look, I would. That'd be. I'd actually really like it and really enjoy that." So it was bringing, you know, I was able to sort of bring some of the things I'd learned as a PTI in the army mm-hmm. and some of the things I'd learned from coaches about in you know, athletics about training and programming and periodization mm. and things like that yep but then you know not, I, did, I knew that I needed to do a little bit more than just bring the things that I'd learned along from the other from my history into the new position so I went away and I did a Level 1 Australian Strength and Conditioning Association course and learned a lot from that and um, also did the Level 2 as well a little bit later on along the journey. So I did bring a bit more experience and, and go, mm. go and gain a bit more experience about it to take in. 2010, after World Championships, I sort of thought, man, I still actually love it. And I was still <laughs> playing locally and having fun with it and stuff yeah. like that. I thought, oh, you know what? <laughs> I might have another go. <laughs> so I asked Brad, at "The time, oh, mate, do you do you think it'd be okay if I, you know, nominated myself to have try and make the 2012 team?" And he went. and He said, "Oh, I don't know about that." So he oh. went away, and thought about thought about it, <laughs> and he came back and he said to me, "He said, you know what? I will. I'll let you try and make the team, but you've got to do it, you know, the same way everybody the proper else way. does." Yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, but. I also want you to keep writing programs for the, for the athletes. So I was like, "Oh man!" So yeah, I was not only writing. He wanted, athletes, it, he
0: wanted his cake and eating it too, didn't he?
1: <laughs> exactly. Yes, but it was like, "Well, not only now am I writing programs for other athletes. I have to I'm actually writing, do these programs. <laughs> but,
0: uh, I have to write it for myself." Yeah,
1: and, and that was funny because it was actually probably a really good insight into you know putting down on paper what you think an athlete needs yeah and and what will get them there but then actually doing it yourself and feeling you know what that's probably it's probably a bit harder than I really want someone working at the moment and mm. so it was a really yeah. good way of measuring a program on paper to not only just watching an athlete do it but how it actually felt
0: yep. yeah yeah so no, i think um, that was a I know Adam Bleakney, who's a wheelchair track coach in, yep. in Champagne, yes. he, he, yeah. every single program that he writes for his athletes, he does himself beforehand because yep. of that, because it gets him a sense of how fatigued he is from the previous sessions. It gets him a, a sense of how hard is this? Is it harder than I want it to be right now? Or is it, you know, do I need to tweak it a little bit? Like he he's very... You know, he still does all of the programs that he sets for the athletes because of that.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly, and that's mm. it. Uh, uh, that's exactly how I felt about it. Yeah, and uh, I, I don't actually physically do the program anymore mm. on, in a chair, but I still, I still know, and I still feel really confident in in knowing how that would feel if yep. if I was doing it. Yep. So I think it's a great tool to have in in the kit. Mm. Yeah, so London ended up making the team, going away again, and we just had an absolute blinder for those those games. We won every game by, I think in the end, it was an average of 13 goals or 13 tries these days. Yeah, and Uh, I I remember
0: that that the final where you were given the ball to score the last goal.
1: That's right, yes. Yeah. Yep. And it was just such a special game too, not only f- for the gold medal and, and not only for that kind of, you know, that moment at the end of the ga- end of the game, that last goal, mm. but I was also really fortunate and, and honoured to be awarded the, the flag bearer open, yeah. for the opening ceremony during those games as well. So, you know, the, it was an, an amazing way to go out as an athlete actually mm. and, and I was really you know that was the last time that I did retire uh, <laughs> just because, because there was just no other way of I just couldn't think of any other way of going out
0: yeah so, yeah yeah well I and mean, I'd also start yeah
1: it was pretty good I'd also start to realize that other athletes
0: were getting <laughs> better was than
1: you harder and harder and harder, <laughs> yeah. but,
0: bringing that high performance mindset brings brings good people be- behind you doesn't it
1: yeah yeah
0: yeah. Does. yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, so you s- then, okay, it's a program. Yeah. What is? Oh, yeah. Go ahead. What a lot of changes you've seen over over that period of time that you've been an athlete. Like the the world of para sport and and as a coach since then, yeah. the world of para sports changed enormously. Would you say?
1: Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Not only you know from those high performance values, but you know classification has changed. Mm-hmm. So much, I think, the sport over the years, you know, I think some for the good, some not so for the good. Um, I think, you know, I think it's hurt. You know, if I think about my classification in wheelchair racing, I think, you know, I was classified. I think when I was classified, it was probably more, a lot more, you know, spinal cord athletes mm. in the in the mix. And then the classification sort of changed a little bit and then we started to get neurological Type athletes, I think some of the spinal cord athletes kind of got left behind a little bit Mm. in the in the sport of of, of wheelchair racing, and yeah, the sport, from what I can see from the outside now, is probably had quite a big decline in numbers Mm. um, for quads anyway. Yeah, Um, and events as well. Yeah, yeah. There's,
0: I was going to say, quads quads don't race the the marathon anymore.
1: No, well, and you know, there's not a lot. In the middle and long distance, either mm. you know. I remember, you know, when I sort of finished up in 2000, you know, you were you were getting heats and semis mm. in some of the some of the events, and now it's either just a straight final or the event doesn't even exist, yeah. um, which is really quite like. You know, I don't know whether that's all classification or not and scheduling, but or whether it's just a sign of the times where some pe- people might not be into sport as much as they as they were, mm. um, which I've noticed, you know, quite a bit across able-bodied and para sort of sport, I think, you know, especially since COVID, mm. sort of strong back to sport a bit. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, yes, there have been a lot of changes <laughs> along the way. Yeah.
0: And so what would you say are some unique aspects of of strength and conditioning for wheelchair rugby so that you have to put into consideration when you're setting programs that, you know, and maybe that's hard to answer because, that's the setting that you've been setting programs for 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 most of your career as as a strength yeah. and conditioning coach. But what are some yeah. of the unique things as a strength and conditioning coach in wheelchair rugby that you have to think of that perhaps someone who's coaching in a more you know in say wheelchair basketball or even just in able bodied sports probably doesn't go through that thought process?
1: Yeah, look, I th- I think the f- yeah when when I, I- When I look at the athletes that can play wheelchair rugby, and again, you know, we talk about from spinal cord through quad amp Mm -hmm. athletes these days, which have come from, you know, things like meningococcal or blood diseases or anything like that Mm -hmm. or birth defects, Um, and then, you know, the neurological, some of the neurological diseases uh, like CMT and, uh, yeah, you need to kind of consider all those differences, Mm -hmm. um, particularly, I suppose, around... Adapting exercises and and adapting programs to suit those types of impairments. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, when I think about even just the even the variation within a spinal cord injured athlete, Mm -hmm. so have you know you might be talking about a a player with who is quite uh, able but still has limited function in one hand, but really good function in another hand. So how can we adapt a a seated row or a, a grip type exercise? to suit them mm-hmm. where they're strong on one side and they're not on another. Uh, so we need to look at adaptive equipment there and, and how that might work, what sort of machine might work or might not work when it comes to a particular exercise. What can we do to an adapter machine,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, make changes, or what can we do for body weight exercises? Can a person get in and out of a chair? Mm-hmm. Can they grip bars to do pull-ups or things like that? Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's just, looking at the impairment that the athlete might have and how we then have to think about um, adapting or manipulating equipment to make it work for the athlete. But also, you know, when you talk about quads in particular, things like um, heat or thermal regulation Mm. when they're training. So, you know, a lot of the athletes can't sweat, so thermally you know they can't regulate their body so they can uh, overheating an athlete can be overheated before they even get in their chair mm. so you know you've just got to be really careful about what they can do if they know that there's a, a training session or a competition is going to be quite warm and they know that they're not a sweating athlete and they know that overheating is going to be a real issue then you know a lot of the lead up to the to the session or the event you know, how do we how do we best prepare and keep that athlete cool along the way whether it's ice vests or staying in air conditioning as long Mm -hmm. as they can before they get on the court. Yeah, so there's just a lot of those types of thought processes, I think, that have to go into programming and and planning competitions.
0: Yeah, and we were talking about this just before we started the recording that my first time that I met you was actually – in, when you were preparing for the Atlanta Games, and there was a training camp up in Darwin, which in Australia is hot and humid, and and I've got a photo somewhere. This is back in '96, so it's a, it's a, somewhere in my in my <laughs> my storage area. It's um, not your man. <laughs> It hasn't reached it hasn't come out of storage you've got to remember i've moved a lot <laughs> so but i do remember it, it, it's you with big ice packs one on each shoulder and people doing rubbing you down with ice after a training session and so you know how far has cooling athletes come over that period of time you know we're talking about nearly 30 years now. <laughs> Yeah. did I just say that <laughs> You know, um, <laughs> h- how far has that come
1: yeah it's come a long way you know we still do use ice it's obviously the easiest thing to get sometimes you know a, a bag of ice in an esky yep. Um can still do wonders to get somebody's uh, core temperature down if we if that's what we need to get well, what needs to happen as quickly as we can mm-hmm. um, but you know obviously now we can use ice in ice baths so you can get um, you know if you're fortunate enough to have a facility that has an ice bath we can you you know we can get athletes straight into those as soon as we can mm-hmm. after their event or after their training session or you can you you, know, you can now get the blow-up ice bars that we often transport and take with us to go away mm-hmm. to places to set that to be able to set those up we understand you, you know there are cooling vests these days that you can get and use if, if we need to use those. Mm-hmm. We've even got you know, to the point now where, you know, you can use graduated compression in things like um, products from Normatech where compression can be blown up to to help with recovery. But you can also get those with cooling mm-hmm. um, as well. So there can be, you know, actual ice or cold compression. Mm-hmm. So you're getting two two recovery modalities in the one thing. Mm. But, yeah, so it's certainly come a long way. There's a lot more probably research being done and understanding of the dangers of, you know, overheating and on not only on performance but just on your general health. Yep. So yep. there's a lot more, I guess, understanding of, you know, what what temperature can we compete in and what is now considered too dangerous and just not, you know, not worth the risk. Mm-hmm. You know, we, ha- we actually... Have developed um, with the AIS and their their uh, recovery centre there. You know guidelines now that we use in Australia mm-hmm. for you know venues that have ambient mm. you know, temperature. We can we can now say okay, you know if we're looking at a temperature between this, then basically the session needs to be modified so that uh-huh, it doesn't. Right. You know yep. it might you know we might have a guideline or we'll, we can work within this temperature, but obviously you know within constantly monitoring the athletes and and checking that they're okay but we we will limit the what we're doing in the session to 30 minutes or 40 minutes on the temperature or so yeah yeah, we've kind of we've brought out a bit of a heat guidelines cool which yeah yeah, which works really well too
0: nice and we are a power sports nutrition podcast so (laughs) yeah from a nutrition (laughs) perspective what do you what did you face as perhaps one of your biggest nutrition challenges and what do you see in the current day? climate of nutrition as being a challenge for most of the athletes that you work with yeah I thought
1: I think the biggest thing for me in my early days was I just didn't have an understanding of how blood sugar levels can can Mm. really affect performance and and training and even just you know recovery as well like I just there were days where I would get in a chair and Go to do a session, or I would just about pass out. And I, it took me a long time to actually figure out what that was. Mm-hmm. And it was just that, you know, getting a quad and reasonably sort of high level, kind of top sort of quad that, you know, I, I had to manage my blood sugar levels because mm-hmm. they would just drop, yeah, um, so easy, so easily. So you know, it was like, well, how do I, how do I manage that? And you know, for me, it was always a banana, banana before I did a session, mm-hmm. um, just. It, it helped immensely immensely with, with my blood sugar levels. So remember you know, people laughing and, and I sort of became kind of a bit of an known internationally with I'd be jumping in a chair and I'd be starting my warm up with a banana and <laughs> so like kind of the first lap of lap of my warm up. Would be me chewing this banana <laughs> without my hands. So it did probably it wasn't probably the greatest of looks. <laughs> this banana banana half hanging out my mouth as I was going around. <laughs> but um, but yeah, and I and I took that right through my career. I, I'd have it before every session, mm-hmm. um, and and every event. So so it just became nutrition started to become something that you you not only you didn't just eat through the day to be to be fueling your body but mm. it, it was really important around sport and recovery too, you know, learning that your body needed you know, to refuel mm-hmm. from the energy expenditure that, you, that you've just used in a session and used in competition and that's still something that we, we're trying to get across to ath- new athletes so it's, it's really important. If you want tomorrow's session or this afternoon's session to be of quality, then you need to recover from what you've done the mm. day before or the session before. So yeah. But they were certainly huge learnings along the way and, and, and still are.
0: But with really yeah. simple solutions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, you don't you don't need to be going off to the supplement shop mm-hmm. either. I think there's another thing that I've learnt really along the way that, you know, supplements aren't the answer to everything. You can get all your recovery and all your pre-workout and pre-event requirements from actual real foods.
0: Mm. Yep, absolutely. Wow. There's so much I could ask you about, Greg. You're, you're <laughs> we almost need a, a probably whole talk too much. <laughs> I probably need a, another a whole other podcast to kind of get every, every little bit of, of, of gems of knowledge out of your brain. Well, let's go to recommendations. What recommendations do you have for athletes in the current day and age who are getting just starting in para sport or maybe are in a para sport but are looking for maybe a bit of a change?
1: Uh, look, I think it. I think the really good thing about para sport these days, and I'm, I'm hoping it's across all sports and all programs, but it particularly is with the ones that, well, the one that I work with, but I also know from athletics mm-hmm. and swimming and all, and a lot of these other high performance sort of sports that are in para sport these days, and, and most of them are, is that there's such a great support network mm-hmm. around athletes, and I think that athletes really should explore and use every single one of them that they can if they want to be achieve the goals that they're obviously going to be setting for themselves at this level you know right across from you know, obviously your coaching, through your SNC through your through your nutrition, through your psych, through mm-hmm. your physios, through sport analysis, game analysis and um, technique analysis, biomechanics, all those sorts of things. Are there now? You don't have to go really searching for them. And how do I get better? They're there for you in within programs. And I, 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 really think that the best thing an athlete can do to achieve the goals that they're going to set is to explore every single facet mm-hmm. of support that's within the program to help you be a, be a better athlete. Because they will all complement each other and all come together
0: mm-hmm.
1: in the fight in the final package.
0: Yep. Fantastic. What about coaches? Coaches who may be wanting to get into coaching wheelchair rugby. What recommendations do you have for them?
1: Yeah, I think there are pathways now that there, there, there never used to be a lot. Mm. Um, you know, you just sort of turn up, and you might have you might have coached a sport at a different level. Enable what It might be you might have coached basketball. Mm-hmm. You're an able bot You might have coached yeah all sorts of different sorts of sports, and you might have turned up and thought yeah someone would. Would you like to be interested in? But now it's um, there are pathways that are developed, and if you you know if you're looking at or want to be a, a wheelchair rugby coach, I think within sporting associations now, state level, there are ways to yeah that you can learn how to become a good coach mm. or how to become a coach. You know, you're not. I don't think it's going to be as difficult to get positions higher than just a, a club coach these days. I think you know, coaching is going to keep developing and keep getting better so you can know yeah i think there's always avenues of getting at the bottom and working away all the way up to the top mm. um, but yeah state associations will definitely be able to assist in anyone who's interested in new coaches yep. new coaches
0: yep and i was going to say what's one of the biggest things you've learned over <laughs> over your years but it's probably like that's a list of about Fifty. Uh, <laughs> yeah,
1: I've probably spoken. I've spoken too long as it is. <laughs> oh,
0: so wait, we'll, we'll move on to the last one. This is this is the last one. So, what's your favourite yep. food?
1: Oh, jeez. I love a lamb roast. Oh, or <laughs> a, a roast meal, absolutely. So, but I think that's just yeah, growing up. Yeah. Your grandmother putting a roast on the table as a kid. Um. Oh, but I. I do my favorite. I think I love Vietnamese food. Mm-hmm. So uh, anything, anything Vietnamese, especially a pho
0: soup. Oh, um, seriously! <laughs> I I just did another recording in in the last period of time, and that was exactly the same thing that 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 person said, and and or that athlete said, and nobody else has said a, a pho soup yet. So, well, yeah, right, awesome! Right. <laughs> I've got two in yeah. a row. Uh, <laughs> love yeah. it. Awesome. Well. Smithy I've got to say it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and I really appreciate your time your endless support of the whole Paralympic sort of programs and your dedication like it's just second to none so it's been an absolute honor being able to chat with you
1: well thanks very much Liz I've actually really enjoyed it and yeah I hope that um, someone listening can take anything out of it and yeah, sorry if, I, if their ears are bleeding.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, uh, I think, you know, the it seems like the average time that people listen to podcasts, they say to me, is, is it an average commute, which is about 25 minutes. So we've just split it into two average commutes. So there you go. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> They'll go well, part one and part the, two.
1: <laughs> enjoy the drive.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I think what I've learned the most from talking to Greg is that life can change pretty quickly, but you, if you're open to opportunities, you never know where it's going to take you. And I find it's really interesting that he's come full circle with what he first started in as being interested in physical activity and teaching physical activity. And that's really what he does now as a strength and conditioning coach. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any suggestions on people you'd like to listen to or any feedback, please leave it on our website. And I hope you'll join us next time when we talk to Kevin Mather, who is a para archer.